Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. And just an exciting few weeks ahead. And as you, you saw, that, that, that calendar is full. We've got literally events for the entire family. Kids, you can be dismissed for Kids Church. Um, for the kid all the way up to the adults, uh, we're still waiting on a family activity uh, in the middle of November because The Chosen, if you've seen that, uh, that, that TV show, I highly recommend that you do it. Uh, they are going to be releasing episode one and two of season three in our local theaters. And so we're going to buy as many tickets as we can and open that up to you. And we can gather together, have a meal uh, beforehand uh, and uh, enjoy that. So we'll have a nice family activity. We're going to have a, uh, even a movie night. Once it gets a little bit darker for our kids out on the lawn here on the big uh, jumbo uh, blow up movie screen or whatever it is that we have and so but we're uh, we are just fully back into full mode uh, from COVID and so I pray that you will jump in uh, in these activities and uh, super excited also if you're available on that Wednesday to partner with you down at the Street Life Ministry and uh, be uh, preaching to uh, last couple Wednesdays ago there was a hundred people uh, there and just a wonderful wonderful opportunity to serve uh, the less fortunate in our in our city Matthew chapter 5 Matthew 5 we are continuing in our series uh, the Beatitudes the the kingdom is ours and it is our final uh, our final sermon and uh, if you've kind of been with the ebb and the flow of this series, you've noticed that we've kind of allowed the words of Christ from the text of Matthew 5 to lean in on us. And then our next week has always been, how do we cultivate that? However, we don't want to cultivate persecution. <laughs> so the title is going to be a little bit different than all the other second messages. And it's entitled, What to Do When You Are Not Being Persecuted what to do when you're not being persecuted. But let's read the text and glean from it. Matthew 5, verse number 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. That verbal, that verbal abuse, whether it's caustic in nature or just simply slandering uh, your name to just lying to you and just all that the verbal side of it by verse 12 rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you and so this morning we begin to kind of look at the outcome at the beginning of this message of what persecution is and then we're going to be finishing up this series on the beatitudes and the lord has worked so much in this beginning portions of the sermon on the mount that we are going to entitle the rest of the series differently, but we're going to embark or we're going to move from the Beatitudes into the rest, verse by verse, through the rest of this sermon that Jesus preached here. And it's been a beautiful time together. But what does Jesus mean when he talks about blessing and reward for his people who endure persecution? We, we started to look at that towards the end of the message last week, and I want to just kind of refresh us a little bit. There's great blessing. There is fellowship with Christ when you share the cup of suffering. We're given a wonderful picture of that 
in the book of Daniel when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they, they for righteousness' sake, they stood against the, uh, the king's law that they were to eat his meat. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. I'm only going to eat pulse. I'm only going to eat from uh, what the Lord wants us to eat. And so because of that disobedience, because of living right, they got thrown into the fiery furnace. And it was so hot that those that even threw them in were consumed. And yet the king later notices that these men are not consumed and it says in Daniel 3:25 and he answered and said lo i see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they have no hurt and the form of the fourth is like the son of god and so we saw last week that christ is with you in your time of persecution whether it's physical most of us in this room most likely do not know what that's like here in the blessed america but I believe often we, are, we can be persecuted verbally. We can, because of our stand, because of our light for Christ, we can be mocked. I talk to you, those of you that are students, and that you are, you're in your schools, and you're going you're gonna to live for Christ. You're going to let people know that you're a Christian if you're not going to go along with this sexual revolution. And you're going to keep yourself pure for that spouse someday. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be made fun of. You're going to be, 2022 persecuted verse number 11 of our text here but christ is with you in your flames in your time of affliction first peter 4 14 says if you be reproached for the name of christ you're mocked because of your stance happy are ye for the spirit of glory and of god rested upon you on their part he is evil spoken of but on your part he is glorified last week i gave you Two testimonies, and I want to remind you of them again as we, as we start this message. It's from Samuel Rutherford in, in Kent Hughes' book on the Beatitudes. I never knew by my nine years of preaching so much of Christ's love as he taught me in Aberdeen by six months imprisonment. So nine years of preaching the glorious Word of God. And he said, I learned more about Christ. I learned more about his love when I was in prison. John Bunyan he was in prison for, for 12 years in the Bedford, England. He, it took him from his wife for 12, his kids for 12 years. He said this in his book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. After I had been a Christian for a long time and had been preaching about five years, I was arrested at a meeting of good people in the country. I'm going to sp speak more about that here in a moment. I've never in all of my life had so much of the Word of God opened up so plainly to me before. Those scriptures that I saw, nothing particular and before have been made in this place, prison, to shine upon me. Also, Jesus Christ, never more real to me than now. Here I have seen and felt him indeed. I never knew before what it was really was for God to stand beside me at all times. As soon as fears have presented themselves, so have supports and encouragements. And so the promise to those that experience persecution, those that are afflicted for your stance, for your willingness to live for Christ. It says in the face of that mockery and that ridicule, that slander and persecution, there is a blessing. And the blessing is, is that Christ is there with you. But what about the reward? Remember I left you hanging last week? The reward. Verse Matthew 10, 42 says, and whosoever shall give you to drink 
shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water, only in the name of a disciple, water only in the name of a disciple. Verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. Hmm. What What does that mean? If there is a reward for this act, it must mean that there is something gained for doing it that would not have been gained if we had not done it. Jesus told a parable about servants who were entrusted with responsibility, and they were rewarded, and their reward was based on that stewardship. You can read about it in Luke 19. One was given the authority over ten cities, and another was given over the authority of five cities. Now, this story is a parable. I understand that. But what is the, what is the parable teaching? It seems to be teaching that rewards are generously given by the Lord. It seems that the rewards are different, not in kind, but in degree. Five cities, ten cities. Well, what does this mean? And we begin to ponder this concept of reward. Will it not be all the same for us in heaven? What does it mean when when Jesus says, lay up your treasure in heaven? It seems to be saying that it is possible to have more rather than less in heaven. In other words, I could choose to have more there and less here, or I can choose to have more here and less there. And here in this eighth beatitude, Christ says to those who are persecuted, whether it's by hand or whether it's being slandered or ridiculed for your life in Christ, he says, rejoice. He says, be glad because great is your reward in heaven. He seems to be saying that they should have joy because something is going to be theirs on the account of the fact that they were persecuted, the fact that they were afflicted that would not have been theirs if they had not done so otherwise. Now, Jonathan Edwards, he's, he's helped me greatly on this. We, we lacked time last week because you're going to see that I'm going to totally pivot here in a moment from the blessing and the reward. We didn't really have time last week, but I punted last week on purpose because I needed more time. And that's lovely to be able to do when you're just going verse by verse through a book. You can say, all right, we're done. You got to come back next week to get the rest of it. And that's kind of what I did to you. But Jonathan Edwards helped me greatly. He says quite clearly from the Bible that there is a degree, in a sense, of reward in heaven. So I want you to I'm going to read a lengthy portion. It's not going to be up on the screen, so you're going to have to, you know, it just be, be, be locked in. And I don't normally lead, read long, long, long passages from people, but I think it's helpful. Jonathan Edwards says for, from one of his sermons, There are different degrees in happiness and glory in heaven. The glory of the saints above will be in some proportion to their eminency in holiness and good works here. Christ will reward all according to their works. He then cites the authority over the ten cities and the cup of cold water. And then he goes on to say, Christ tells us that he who gives a cup of cold water to a disciple shall in no wise lose his reward. But this could not be true if a person should have no greater reward for doing many good works than if he did but few, Edward says. 
He goes on to add, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly will reap also sparingly. And the person that sows bountifully is going to reap bountifully. And he quotes from 1 Corinthians 15, 41. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. He goes on to say this, and I like it. It seems like he's somewhat even contradicting himself here. All shall be perfectly happy. Everyone will be perfectly satisfied. Every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others. Kent Hughes said, I am not suggesting that we earn rewards in heaven like air miles on a credit card. Think of all of us like little pots. All of us will be cast into an ocean of happiness. But all pots are not the same size. Even the best works of suffering Christians are shot through, that now it's back to Edwards, are shot through with our own fallenness and are of eternal value only because they are satisfied in Jesus Christ. But Edwards says this, but the scriptures give us this wonderful encouragement in the hardest of times. Blessed are you when you're reviled for righteousness sake. Great is your reward when you have to be persecuted. And so they're saying, hey, there's a reward. I'm standing before you to tell you I'm no, I'm no theologian like Jonathan Edwards. I don't fully understand the whole rewarding concept. But there is on that horizon, there's blessedness. There's Christ with you. There's a, there's a rewarding that comes your way. Now, will we take all those rewards and place them right back at Jesus' feet? That's what Ryan tends to believe. But it, it's still, there's, a, there's a collective nature for when we're persecuted, when we are reviled. You're not just doing it. It's not just all vanity as we're going through Ecclesiastes at our 10 o'clock Bible study. No, there's meaning behind why we would go through this struggle. So my takeaway from Jonathan Edwards and then Kent Hughes's synopsis of Jonathan Edwards is that suffering is not simply to just be endured. We don't just endure it. Something is coming out of it of great value that wouldn't necessarily happen if you hadn't gone through it. That's kind of my, that's my takeaway. There's, there's a blessing, there's a, there's a reward that comes with being persecuted, whether with by the hand or the tongue, the two elements we looked at last week. So then this raises a very, very important question for us. What if I am not being persecuted? So if there's this blessing that's connected to it, and there's this reward, well, what if I'm not being persecuted? Well, the reward of those who are persecuted, insulted, and reviled is great, but where does that leave us who are blessed with gifts of freedom and the privileges that we have to enjoy them? In many parts of the world today, if a police officer were to come to the church on Sunday, he's there to arrest the pastor. He's there to arrest some of the congregants or maybe some of the, some of the leaders but even with the changes that are so rapidly happening in our country today, even, even, even knowing that, we are blessed 
in an unprecedented way and that in this country that most believers in this world would literally just give everything to have the freedoms that we have today. And praise God that you're here. Praise God we're going to celebrate with several adults after church this uh, uh, newness of life. Listen, none of us really had fear in our hearts that someone was going to come in here and shut this meeting down because we're preaching Christ. That day might come, and it's coming quicker than maybe any of us really thought it was, but this is what so much of the world dreams about. So are we really being persecuted? I say verbally, if you're standing loudly for Christ, you are. But So what do we do? What do we do when we're not persecuted? Well, let me just give you some, some just practical help. Normally, my second message is very just practical in nature, and so I want to continue with that, that, that theme even as we end out this series. Number one, be thankful for the blessings of peace and freedom. Be thankful for them. We're not meant to wish for persecution. We are not to seek it. We are to be thankful for the gift of freedom. We are to do everything in our power, the Apostle Paul says, to live peaceably with all men. We're to do everything we can to protect the freedom that we have. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, I exhort you, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that what? We may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So a peaceful and quiet life is something to be prayed for, something to be thankful for. This is not going to be a sermon on cultivating persecution like every other one of the Beatitudes are because we're not, we're, we don't need to be out there trying to be obnoxious, trying to fester up this. No, 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 no. We are to, to the best of our ability, Paul says, to live peaceably with all men. And so you ought to be thankful for it. Praise Him for it. I mean, praise God. We ought to, we, we, we ought to, we ought to protect it. We ought to, uh, we, we, we ought to vote accordingly, according to, 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 to biblical morals. And so we ought to be thankful for the freedoms that we have. Let me give you another thing here. Remember those who are persecuted. Remember them. Remember them. It's easy to forget. But the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 13, 3, remember them that are in bonds, as bonds with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. So the book of Hebrews gives us kind of a list of suffering heroes, right, in the Old Testament. Go to Hebrews 11 and you can see many of them. The Hebrew Christians who received this honor, they, many of them, they had their lives completely altered. So when, the, so when the author of Hebrews says later, and we're going to look at the verse here in a moment, but when he says, hey, hey, don't miss church, he's not so much talking to necessarily a family that's just missing maybe because of a sporting event. No, 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 no. He's, he's writing to people that would have been afraid in this first century church that if they, if they gathered together as a form of believers, that they could literally be persecuted for it. There could have, the, the, the police of that day, so to speak, could have come and, and, and taken them. Not just, not, he's not just writing to someone that's going to skip a Sunday. Hebrews 10, 25, not forsaking yourself the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching so some members of those congregations they were they were in prison 
Possibly the pastor and a, and a couple of board members or whatever you want to call them. Maybe they've been taken off to a local jail. And then the following Sunday, what would that church do? They would gather and they would pray and they would think of them. But out of sight becomes out of mind over time. And so what used to be um, just fervently praying for them comes to God, would you just bless the pastor and -and so-and-so that are in prison? And so the author of Hebrews, he's telling us, no, no, you, you need to remember. Remember those are persecuted. Remember those that are in bonds. Remember those that are, that are suffering adversity. And I know I could do a whole lot better job of that, at least as a leader in bringing some of this information to you. But we all have access to news and things, and so we ought, to, we ought to remember what's going on around our country. Hebrews says, don't let, don't forget, don't forget. Let me give you another third one. Make sure you are doing what is right. So we're not being persecuted. So we ought to thank God for that, absolutely. We ought to remember those that are, and then we need to begin to ask ourselves the question, are we doing right? What does the text say? Matthew 5.10 says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So we're thinking about what to do when you're not persecuted. One thing is to check, am I really, am I really living a righteous life? Or are we just talking, acting, living just like the lost and dying world? Are we just melting in with them? Yeah, it's going to be pretty easy with that. So ask yourself that question. I'm not here to tell you that you're not living a righteous life. Holy Spirit of God is far more powerful than I am. But ask yourself, am I living loudly for Christ? Am I living a righteous life to where, what what did Paul say? That you you will suffer persecution if you live for Christ. Jesus talks about hiding your light under a basket, under a bushel. We're going to get to that in a few weeks when we continue down through the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the light of Christ in a group of people, in you as a believer. But if we're hiding it under a basket so no one can see it, well, what did Christ say? He said, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel or a basket, but on a candlestick. And he giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, righteousness, your living righteously, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We can always reduce pain by withdrawing from the world. Meaning we're, not gonna, we're just going to be quiet about our faith. We're just going to withdraw. Nobody knows you're a Christian maybe at school. You can avoid a whole lot of trouble. But Jesus said, light, it's got to shine. Jesus said, other, hey, you, you've got to be the salt. You've got to be the preserver. You've got to be the one that is bringing great change. Rebecca Manley Rippert, she wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker. <laughs> what a brilliant title that is. But the synopsis of the book is this. You can't keep the salt in the salt shaker. You've got to get it out. So your light's got to shine. You're preserving saltiness of you, Christ in you, changing you, causing you to live differently, sanctifying you, the whole beatitude process. Man, hey, that's got to get out on others. Light, salt persecution most likely persecution but we can avoid a whole lot of trouble 
And we can miss the opportunity for influence if we just say, you know what, I don't, I, I don't, I don't like this. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna melt in. No one's gonna, no one's gonna really know that I'm a believer. I'm convicted right now. Let's move on to number four so I can stop being so convicted. Number four, preserve, per, per, persevere in the face of difficulty and opposition. One of the easiest ways to avoid pain, persecution, trouble, and opposition is to move on to whenever it appears. Isn't that what I just did? It's exactly what I did, and I did it on purpose. Let's just move on, because we literally can just move on. Some Christians remain spiritual infants because we have formed the habit of always taking the easier path. One thing that our culture offers more than any other in the world is choice. I mean, all you got to do is go to a local like, like Target or Walmart, wherever you like to shop, and notice how many kinds of toothpaste there are. You ought to do it this week. Like, hmm. You got like 20 different choices. And then even within the same brands, you got choices within the brands. Uh, do you want it to be whitening? Do you want it to be cavity protection? Do you want both? I don't know why they all can't just be both, but that's just me. You know, just let me just say that, right? But I mean, it's like, does it whiten like, you know, if you use it three times, 10 times, 30 times? It's just choice, 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 choice. I love it, actually. But that's mirrored in every area of life. Choices of doctors, choices of churches, choices of schools. Those of you that are joining with us today and, and um, visiting, thank you for worshiping the Lord with us. There's a great blessing of life. This is choice. But there's also a problem that comes with it. See, living in a choice culture, if I experience difficulty in one place, I can easily move to another. If I don't get along with necessarily someone in the church or the pastor said something that I didn't like, it's so easy because they, churches abound. And by the way, I rejoice in that because we're kingdom-minded here. It's not us against any other church if it's gospel preaching. We are all on the same team, and I rejoice with, with victories. But there's so many choices. And so if things get difficult in my job, I can just quit and I can find another one. And a culture geared to comfort and a culture that's geared to convenience. Are you still with me? We good? You all right? Baptisms are coming. I'm excited too. It's easy to form a habit of just choosing something that is more simple. An easier, less resistant path. I've got to do what's best for my family. Now that's an understandable statement, right? And we actually ought to do what's best for our family. And I've used it myself. But sometimes, here's what it means. What's going to be easier for me and my family. Not always what's best. The problem is, is that what is easiest for me and my family is not always what's best. One of the deepest impressions I have of growing up was that I saw my own father go through. And my dad's here today, and Dad, I love you. I didn't know he was going to be here today when I was writing this this week. But my dad has such a spirit of tenacity in his work while he was on a heart surgery team. The endless, just, just difficult situations that he was in, the, the two hours, sometimes plus, on a Friday to get to work. And why? Because he wanted to keep us in a solid Bible church. And so he was willing to commit commute to the place where he was working. And so he would commute two plus hours and then he'd commute two plus hours on the way back and just be just totally exhausted. And yet he would get some rest so we could do it all the, ne all the next day. And I learned a great work ethic 
from him, of not necessarily just taking the easy route. Ajay Fernando, commenting on our culture in a long title of a book, it's called Sorrow and Blood, Christian Mission in Context of Suffering, Persecution, and Martyrdom. Man, that is a mouthful. But here's what he said. Somehow, there seems to be this idea that if you are suffering, you are doing something wrong. The problem is compounded by the mobility of affluent people today. As people keep changing from job to job, from neighborhood to neighborhood, and from church to church, long-term commitments are becoming a culturally rare phenomenon. It is when you stick to your call, however hard it is, that you encounter the type of suffering that contributes to great mission. However, people are used to moving from place to place based on convenience, on the opportunity to be more productive, on escaping from suffering in unpleasant relationships. So they may move when they are confronted with suffering, persevering through inconvenience, struggling to be productive against many odds, taking on suffering, sticking to unpleasant relationships are what combine to produce great mission. Wow. Mr. Fernando, he, he knew something here. There is a character that is formed by staying at it. I know what you're thinking. Maybe you're not thinking this, but I want to think it for you. Should we try to escape persecution? Should we ever? Is trying to flee from persecution sometimes the right thing to do? If so, the answer is yes to that, by the way. How would you know it? I think these are reasonable questions. What do you do when your kids experience opposition at school because they are Christians? You're working in a place that is extremely hostile to you because you are a Christian. Should you leave? Or should you stay? There's always an easier path, and it will sometimes be right to take it. But how do you know when to stand, when to stay, or when to flee? These are real choices, right? And there's a thousand examples of those choices. John Bunyan, who we spoke about earlier in his book called Seasonable Counsels to Advice to Sufferers, he said, and, and I wanted to remind you, Bunyan was arrested for preaching in open-air uh, kind of uh, services at a time when preaching was not allowed unless they were licensed by the Church of England. So this, th this persecution resulted because Queen Elizabeth's the first attempt to impose the Church of England on everyone. And so this act, this law, the Act of Uniformity in 1662 made it illegal for, 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 for Baptist congregationals and even free church pastors to preach in public. So that's kind of the backdrop of what Bunyan is going to speak into in a moment here. He had a choice. He didn't have to preach in public. He actually could have done something else and still fully, you know, he would have, he would have been serving the Lord in some other capacity. But he insisted on preaching, and so he was arrested. And Bunyan arrives at court in Bedford, and the charges are read. And Bunyan says in his book, I... I offered bail to appear at the next session, but he threw me into jail because those who were ready to make up the bond for me would not agree to be bound that I would preach no more 
to the people. When the time came for the trial, the judge asked Bunyan if he was willing to obey the law. And Bunyan said, if you let me go today, I'm going to preach tomorrow. And he was thrown into prison for 12 years, away from his wife and away from his kids. Now, you might expect, right, a man with that type of courage to do that, to say, you should always stand. You should never, you should never flee. You should never leave. But from writing from a cell, he wrote the book, Seasonable Counsels or Advice to Sufferers. And it's so, it's so wonderfully tender. And it's so spiritually wise. Bunyan began by noting that Jesus said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Christ did not say, The world is going to tear you apart, so go out and let them do it. Jesus said, The wolves want to tear you apart, so be wise as serpents. Bunyan concludes, A man is not bound by the law of the Lord to put himself into the mouth of his enemy. Christ withdrew himself. Paul escaped the governor's hands by being led down in a basket over the wall of the city. And Christ said, if they persecute you in one city, flee to another. So there's biblical warrant for taking your family out of a situation that that, that is hostile. You're seeking an easier path. There's biblical warrant for that. The question is, for us, is how do you know when it's time to separate from that? How do you take that, quote-unquote, easier path away from the persecution? Well, as you seek the Lord, He's going to show you what is best for you at that time. You say, oh, that's too easy of an answer. That is the answer. I can't stand up here and tell you, okay, here's the metric. When you get punched in the face the third time, that's when you go. I'm just being facetious with that story. But it's the Lord. You, you have as much of the Holy Spirit in you as I do. And you walk with him and you talk with him. And he's powerful. He's awesome. He leads you and he guides you. And there's going to be times where he's going to say, stay. Endure. Be willing to follow his leading. And then there's also going to be times, man, hightail it and run. Moses fled in Exodus 2, but Hebrews 11 tells us of another time where he stood. David fled in 1 Samuel 19, but he stood in 1 Samuel 24. Jeremiah fled in chapter number 13, but stood in chapter 38. Christ withdrew himself in Luke 9, but he stood his ground in John 18. The Apostle Paul fled out of the basket out of the back, like we just, um, that Bunyan was saying, but he also stood in Acts 20. So there's... there's there's room. Bunyan says there are therefore a few rules in this case. The man himself is best able to judge concerning his present strength and what weight this or that argument has upon his heart to stand or to stay. You know what this is? This is a matter of Christian liberty, and we don't like the word liberty. We like perfect rules where it tells us exactly what to do, legislates out the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. When it comes to do I remain being persecuted or do I flee, it is a Christian liberty. I am not to stand up here and say, you made a wrong decision by bouncing. Hmm. Holy Spirit of God's going to tell you. But here's my encouragement to us. Allow him to lead Allow him to guide and direct us to know whether to stay or to go. Matthew 10, 23, I alluded to this, but when they persecute you in this city, this is Jesus saying, flee ye into another. 
Let me give you a fifth helpful here. Stretch yourself in costly obedience to Christ. So, Ryan, what do we do if we're not being persecuted? Well, you ought to, you ought to be thankful that you are not. Be, be, be thankful that you're being persecuted. Remember those that are, are, are being persecuted. Make sure you're doing what's right. And then persevere during that difficulty, during that opposition, seeking the Lord. Do I remove myself from this? I mean, there's some in our church that can speak about persecution like none of us can. And so do, you, do I remove myself from this? Do I remain in it? It's an ebb and flow. Walk with the Holy Spirit. And then now stretch yourself in costly obedience. There's more than one way to live a costly life. Persecution imposes costs from the outside. But if God allows us the blessing of living with unusual peace and freedom and we thank him for it, then we can use that freedom to live a costly life. That's what Jesus did. He chose the path of costly obedience. He said, I'm gonna, I can lay my life down in John chapter number 18. No one, no one takes my life from me. I can lay that down. I can take it up and I can lay it down. If no one takes my life from me, I want to at least be able to say in the presence of Jesus that I chose to lay my life down sacrificially in a living sacrifice. Isn't that what Paul told us in Romans chapter 12, verse number 1? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. I don't want to meet the Savior who gave everything for me. Having lived a life that was without, or that was without cost for Him. I want to respond to the freedoms and the blessings by stretching myself out in every way possible. And even if it costs, well, whatever the obedience costs. And I want us to do that as a church. I really do. What a tragedy that those who have been blessed the most, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, do the least. Oh, I know some that have been, I, there's people in my life that, that they've got both down. It is such an enjoyment. But sometimes, those of us Americans, right, whether you're from this country or not, I think what I mean, the freedoms within context of our message, the freedoms that we enjoy, man, sometimes we just, we, we just sit on that. We enjoy it all too much. But we ought to be willing to go out. I want us to be that kind of church. Can I remind you of what Piper said? Speaking at a conference, he said, America is one of the hardest places in the world to be a true Christian. The blessings of freedom lead us to an expectation of a comfortable life. A comfortable life produces lethargy of spirit. And that is why fasting and giving and serving and risking are so important to our spiritual health. So if others who are our brothers and sisters in Christ have their goods and their livelihoods taken by force, I can choose to release a generous portion of mine and lay it down voluntarily. If others, it's being ripped from them, I can say, all right, I'm going to be a living sacrifice. I'm going to voluntarily give this. If my brothers and sisters in Christ are in prison while I'm free, I can offer every day of that freedom in the strength of God that he gives me to extend myself without complaint 
for the work of his kingdom. You read Ecclesiastes and you learn that with the perspective of who God is, you can go into your workplace this week. You can get up and you can do that commute that my dad did every single day except for the weekend. And you can do that and you can do it with joy even though you're tired. Why? Because it's from the good hand of God is what Solomon would tell you. Others, they can't do that. Others are in prison. Others are dying. Remember last week we learned that literally 100,000 a year, up to 150,000 Christians die every single year because of their faith. That's not happening here. So God, I can, I can extend my life for you. If other Christians who are brothers and sisters are exhausted with the pains of beatings and tortures, I can press through the tiredness and discouragement I often feel on going in on the call of God for my life. I want you to think about doubting Thomas and how he came to faith after the resurrection of Jesus. Thomas said in so many terms, unless I see the scars, unless I see the nail prints in your hands and the nail prints in your side, I will not believe. What Thomas said of Christ, the unbelieving world is saying to the church, until I see your scars, until I see you actually costing yourself something for the gospel, not going to believe. That's literally what the world is saying. The world is like Thomas today. The world is like, hey, I'm waiting to, for it to mean something to you. And when we're willing to get, we're not in prison, right? We're, we, our things aren't being stolen from us. We could view taxes and things like that. I get that. But you know what I mean. It's not being ripped from us. So we can voluntarily sacrificially advance, as Piper would have said it, risk for the kingdom of God. And I can't help but not finish exactly where I finished last week. From Corey Timboom's book, The Hiding Place. She was in prison, of course, for her rescuing and hiding Nazi, or, or the Jews, excuse me, during World War II, her father and sister Betsy, they both died in the camps. And I want to read this again for you. Betsy and I walked to the square where roll call was being held in the concentration camp. It was still early before dawn. The head of our barracks was so cruel that she had sent us out into a world cold out outdoors in a full hour too early. Betsy's hand was in mine. We went to the square by a different way from the rest of our barrack mates. We were three of us as we walked with the Lord and talked with him. Betsy spoke, then I spoke, then the Lord spoke. How? I don't know, but both of us understood. The brilliant early morning stars were our only light. The cold winter air was so clear we could faintly see the outlines of the barracks. The crematorium, the gas chambers, and the towers where the guards were standing with loaded machine guns. Isn't this a little bit of heaven? Betsy exclaimed. And Lord, 
This is a small foretaste. One day we will see you face to face. But thank you that even now you are giving us the joy of walking and talking with you. Heaven in the midst of hell. Light in the midst of darkness. What a security. My friends, this is what, in my opinion, the reward is. That Christ is with you when you're going through it. And if you're not going through it, be thankful you're not. Pray for those who are. Make sure you're living a life that actually would, you know, we don't need to be cantankerous, but we're living loudly for the Lord. People know that we are a Christian. And then we're willing to walk in the gray area, the liberty of Christ. Do I stay or do I go? And then be willing to say, God, this is, this is, my, this is the life you've given to me. I'm going to offer this as a living sacrifice for you. That's, my friend, what we do when we're not being persecuted. And when we are, Christ is with you. Heaven in the midst of hell is how Corey put it. I love it. In a moment here, we're going to celebrate with some, some folks that, have, that we're going to celebrate new life. And listen, if you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, Jesus Christ makes all of the difference. We're going to celebrate symbolically what they are, what the decision that they've made, the death when they're, when, they're, when, when they're upright, Christ dying on the cross for us some 2,000 years ago, the death, and then the burial, and then the resurrection. Jesus Christ came to die for your sin so that you could have eternal life. And if you don't know that today, don't know that, I want you to, I want you to, I want you to talk to me after church. I want you to observe this baptism. And I want you to see, it, baptism doesn't save anybody. Baptism is simply just a picture. This ring that I'm wearing right now, this simply is just a picture that I am a married man. I'm still married, even though I don't have it on. This simply is just, I am a married man. Baptism is, I am a born-again believer. I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. He's rescuing me from my sin, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. So let's, let's celebrate with these other men and women. Let's pray. Father, we come before you.